Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Casey Butler. As you can see, my subject today is the ultimate fractal. And um, because of what I just shared with the children's story, you might have a little bit of an idea already what a fractal is if you didn't already know. But basically, it's a, a phenomenon in science which we've only recently actually fully defined to the best of understanding um, in recent times. And it was actually um, defined by a gentleman called uh, Benoit Mendelbrot. Uh, he was a Polish-born French-American. And uh, he, in his uh, research, was, was fascinated with patterns. And he noticed all the patterns that you see in nature. And then he did more research. And he understood uh, more about it. And he defined, the, uh, coined the term fractal, like he, he called them fractals. and. Um, he was a very, uh, I guess, observant fellow and an independent sort of thinker. He thought outside the box a bit. And so he was intrigued by things that a lot of other people probably hadn't noticed or thought about much. And basically what a fractal is by definition, it's basically a repeating or self-similar mathematical pattern. And uh, so you would have seen in the pictures I showed earlier examples of that where there's lots of things like leaves, um, shells, the patterns on the animal skins and stuff, where it's the same pattern but it's just repeated over and over. Um, and there's other times where you'll see the same pattern but then it's repeated at different scales. So you'll have larger sizes and then goes really, really small but it's just the same sort of pattern repeated. And uh, here is another definition of fractals from the Fractal Foundation, which it says basically a fractal is a never-ending pattern. It just keeps copying and, and going over. Fractals are infinitely complex patterns that are self-similar, so they're the same across different scales or sizes. And uh, Mendelbrot discovered um, even more complex patterns when he was looking into some maths. Um, and uh, his he discovered what they call, I don't know if any of you have heard of it, the Mendelbrot set. So it's a, a set of um, fractals which are basically built off. Here is an example of one here. Um, where it's, it's basically built off um, doing a whole lot of equations, mathematical equations. So you do a calculation and then you'll get the answer to the calculation and feed it into the next calculation and then repeat that, that calculation over and over and over again. And then you plot on a, like a, a graph sort of thing, um, you plot the answers. And it's, you develop um, with computer simulation this, um, this software, and this, this pattern that goes over and over again and it just keeps going and going and you can go into it infinitely. Um, if you wanted to have a look at more of those kind of things, you can just Google uh, Mendelbrot set and you'll find lots of animations on there which show some of these amazing patterns that can be really, really pretty. And a lot of them actually have shown patterns which we see in nature which 
when we would have first looked at them, thought that doesn't even look like it doesn't even look right. It's it's irregular. It's not even there's no no order in that. It's just a bit chaotic. But um, what Mendelbrot discovered was that a lot of the things that we see in nature, which seem to be a bit chaotic, actually have math behind it and, and actually have amazing order. So that's just an incredible thing um, about God's design that um, uh, we can find that maths can actually de describe some of the, the things that don't look so orderly in nature. So... Mendelbrot fractals, they're basically highly complex mathematical um, pattern representations. They can explain to us the, um, the irregularities of nature and show order in what might seem random to us. And uh, they just highlight how incredibly complex God's design is and how amazing it is. Uh, it's very interesting when you read a little bit about uh, Mendelbrot's personal ref reflections of his own life. Um, because he, even though he saw a lot of patterns in the world around him, he often reflected on his own experience. Uh, and it's interesting what he says. He says this, and some of his reflections you might be able to relate to, just from your experience too. He says, for much of my life, there was no place where the things I wanted to investigate were of interest to anyone. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, but sometimes that's uh, what scientists can feel if they're trying to <laughs> look into something new. Mandelbrot, he says, I was in an industrial laboratory because academia found me unsuitable. His interests didn't fit the norm. <laughs> For a thinking person, the most serious mental illness is not being sure of who you are. That's what he thought. <laughs> then, this one. For most of my life, one of the persons most baffled by my own work was myself. How about that? He didn't even know, like... His own, he didn't even know where what he was studying into was going to take him. My fate has been that what I undertook was fully understood only after the fact. And then this one, my life seemed to be a series of events and accidents. Yet when I look back, I see a pattern. I don't know whether any of you might even relate to some of these thoughts because often that can be the way with our lives, can't it be? You know, we, we can just think, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. God's leading me here. God's leading me there. What does this all mean? What's, what's the big plan that God has for me? And sometimes it's just hard to see, you know, the, your, the ordinary things that you go through in life may not seem to have much meaning. But uh, we can find, and we certainly will find, um, when we, we end up looking back over our life, that, that God can lead and does lead through all the things which we might think were a bit irregular. And uh, we can give thanks to God for that, because um, sometimes life can be a bit discouraging otherwise. But he does lead us through everything. So Mendelbrot was able to look back and even see a pattern in his own life. And uh, so going on with the theme of patterns, today we are going to be looking at, um, as you have seen with the title so far, the ultimate fractal. And the ultimate fractal is the pattern of patterns for us to copy. And of course we could guess who that might be that we are referring to, that we're going to be looking at in more detail today. Um, but uh, it certainly is uh, Christ who is the ultimate uh, fractal, the pattern of patterns we are to copy. 
And uh, as I mentioned this one with the children earlier, 1 Peter 2.21 says, Hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So, we find from this text, Christ has left us an example, but what kind of example specifically? What, what are we talking about here when he says he's left us an example? Well, if we continue reading on in that same passage from verses 22 through to 25, we find it says the following, that Christ who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. What kind of example is this? that we find that Christ has given us? What, is he, what has he shown us? He's given us, as we think about all of these things that it's saying he did here, he's really given us an example of character, hasn't he? He's given us an example of selflessness, of self-sacrifice, of grace, of mercy, of benevolence, of patience and long-suffering, all of these different things. He's given us a supreme example of the glory of Christ's character, of God's character, of who God is like. He has shown in his own life what that is like. And this is what he has given us as an example for us to copy and for us to follow. Those of you who were here at my last um, presentation here in, in uh, January may remember this graphic <laughs> which I showed. Um, I was talking about God's character at that time as well and I was showing uh, basically a, a bit of a, a model or a blueprint or pattern of what God's character is actually like as defined by some verses in the Old Testament. So this is actually based on Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6 and 7 where you remember that um, God told Moses in plain words what he is like in character. And um, so we study that and we find that God's love is the rich fullness of his tender affection, grounded in benevolence and given in selflessness. And these are the principles of God's character. And what we can find with further study um, of the scripture is that it's almost a bit like a duality. There's two streams of characteristics that flow out of God's character. First, we have tender, lenient qualities. These tend to stem from the affectionate side of God's character. And we find things like grace and mercy, long-suffering and forgiveness. But then we also find um, absolute unchanging and stable qualities. And these are things such as truth, law, justice, and judgment. All of those things stem from more the principled side of God's character, which is his benevolence, stemming through from his benevolence. And um, it's very interesting um, that the more that you look in Scripture, you, the more you find this, this blueprint is evident of God's character, and you see it represented over and over again. 
if you want to study into this even more, you can have a look back at um, the previous presentation I did here, um, but also you can find it on YouTube as well if you just search the marriage of God's character. And you'll find it's very interesting stuff. Um, but what we're wanting to do today is actually look at this and compare this model with Christ's life and look at how well Christ actually exemplified these attributes in his own life and in his own experience. Because we're looking at Christ as a pattern, right, for us to copy. And so we want to see how he exemplifies this pattern and, um, and do an investigation. So how we're going to do it is... Uh, just get into a little bit of a, a scientist investigative mindset and uh, pretend we're going through uh, looking at Christ's life with a microscope. First, we're going to look at it fairly broadly, but then we're going to hone in at deeper, deeper zooms and uh, we'll see what we can find as a result. And the first thing we're going to have a look at is Christ's overall life. What does the scripture say about Christ's overall life in terms of his character? How does the, the scripture summarize that? Well, we look in John 1.14, as you can see here on the screen, and it says this, and the word Christ was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you would have noticed there, with a little bit that I underlined, that there's one phrase which is here, which is showing, uh, in a summary form, God's character, Christ's character that he revealed. And uh, there's in that, in that little phrase, we find two types of attributes that are represented. We find the grace, which from what we just looked at is a more tender, lenient quality. And we also find truth, which is an absolute, unchanging and stable quality. And so you think about it. John, the disciple who wrote this verse, he had an opportunity here in five words maximum to express what God's character is like. And within that one phrase, he expresses uh, the duality of God's character. These two streams of attributes summarized right here. And so we find that, um, you know, he's presented it in balance. Because he could have just said, you know, that Christ was full of grace. But he didn't. He didn't leave it at that. He could have said that Christ was full of truth. After all, Jesus himself said, I am the truth. He could have just said that, right? And it, it wouldn't have been wrong. But here he has an opportunity. He's trying to explain the fullness of what Jesus is like in his character. And the only way he can do that is by explaining it with both of these elements, both of these attributes together. And it's only as we see them together that we see the full picture of what Jesus is like. So this is the overview of Christ's life. What happens if we zoom in a little bit further? What happens if we actually um, have a look at just one aspect of Christ's life and see what we find there? Well, we can do that um, by jumping over to Matthew chapter 4. And here we're going to start to have a look at one aspect of Christ's life that we know probably the most about, which is Christ's ministry. Because so, many, so much of the gospel content is, is talking about Christ's ministry. 
And here we find in Matthew 4, verse 23, um, a little summary of the whole scope of what was involved in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Matthew 4, 23, and it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Okay. Let's take a look at this. There's three different types of work that is sort of stated there that Christ has done, right? We've got preaching, teaching, and healing. If we think about what is involved in each of those things, preaching and teaching has a lot to do with disseminating and sharing truth, right? Information and truth, principles, all of those sorts of things. Healing, on the other hand, is a way of expressing things like compassion, care, and kindness. And so here we find Jesus, in his ministry as a whole, is blending the sharing of truth with the expression of love and care. Again, that's that same duality, the same set of Um, streams of character which we find right in the heart of God's love for us and um, throughout Jesus three and a half years of ministry he did this constantly he was constantly combining teaching with healing and preaching with having compassion and mercy on people he was doing it all the time all together and in so doing in this aspect of his life the aspect of his ministry He was revealing in a balanced way all of the attributes, the key attributes of Christ's character. So we have gone through an overview of his whole life, and now we've gone through an overview of one aspect of his life, which is his ministry, and we are finding the same sort of pattern, aren't we? What happens now if we look in and zoom in even more. What happens if we take each of these aspects of his ministry, teaching, preaching, and healing, and see how Christ expresses himself in those areas? What will we find? Well, let's have a look. The first branch of his ministry we're going to look at is teaching. It's very interesting um, when we look at this because we're going to actually look at an, an example of Christ's teaching, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And some of you might think, hang on a minute, sermons, isn't that to do with preaching? That's often what we think of it today, isn't it? But it's very interesting when you read the start of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, um, because the very second verse of that chapter, the start of it, it says that he opened his mouth and taught them. Okay, that's interesting. So the Bible is describing this whole uh, sermon, so to speak, as an an example of teaching. So let's have a look then at what this all means. Teaching, of course, is sharing knowledge and wisdom and giving instruction uh, and how to apply it. So Jesus is doing all of this as part of his teaching. So I'm sure a number of you are already familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, but let's just do an overview of the key things and topics that are discussed in these chapters. And this is taken from Matthew 5 through to Matthew 7. And you can see there that the first part of 
of this, the sermon goes through the, the Beatitudes, all those blessings which uh, Jesus shared with the people. Then it goes through a period of expanding on God's law. Talks about anger, talks about adultery, talks about retaliation, loving our enemies, all these different things. Just Jesus teaching us what it really means to obey the law of God. Talks about giving alms then, fasting, um, how to relate to things of this life. And then we go into the second section where we find God's deep care for us. He tells us how he'll provide for us, provide for our needs. He tells us that he'll give us, you know, make sure we have enough food and, and water and clothing. And then he says, counseling us to not be worried or anxious about the things of this life, but to just prioritize his kingdom. And God will take care of all those things and that we can trust him to do good things for us. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? All of those things. So Christ then does all of this, and then he goes on and he moves on in the last part of the, um, the sermon to talk about various different topics like judging, hypocrisy, how to pray, um, what it means to really follow God, that there's only really two ways um, in, in life, um, then how to test false prophets and, and um what it really means, things about judgment, you know, the wise versus the foolish builders, um, those who are professing versus those who truly know God. All of these things are the things that he sort of finishes off his teaching time with the people. So some of you might have already picked up where we're going with this, but if we look at all those different parts, part A, B, and C, all those different aspects of his discussion there, what do we notice? Well, the first part, part A, of course, he's talking a lot about God's law. So again, we're seeing that sort of absolute unchanging, stable side of attributes coming out in that part of the sermon. Then, of course, in part C, it's similar. He is talking about things to do with judgment, you know, the, the hard and fast realities of life. If you choose one, you don't have the other. If you choose the other, you don't have the other. And um, basically showing what is the realities of our life and uh, teaching those things. So again, things that are absolute and unchanging. And then what's in the middle? Amazing. A section about God's love and care right in the center of it all. So do you know what make this makes me re reminded of? It makes me think of this. <laughs> A jam sandwich because it's like this in the middle we've got that beautiful sweet sweetness of jam right which is like God's love and care and then on either side we have the stabilizing toast right those stabilizing attributes on either side if we just had what's in the middle just the jam we'll be left with a gooey mess we can't do anything um, uh, refined with it because it's going to go everywhere. But if we have it set within those two stable things, it's perfect. On the other hand, if we didn't have anything in the middle and we just had the two slices of bread, it's going to be a bit dry. It's going to be hard to eat. It's going to take a lot of saliva to get it down and it's not going to be so pleasant. Uh, and so you can see here with this little practical analogy that um, having all of these attributes together is what makes it really good. It's what makes Christ's teaching balanced. It what, it's what makes us see his character 
as balanced with principle and love. So there we have Christ's teaching. What about his preaching? Well, just before we dive into an example of Christ's preaching, we want to just take a few moments to define preaching because there's some interesting things we can learn here. When we look at what preaching means, um, as defined in the Strong's uh, Concordance, it says it means basically to herald as a public crier, especially divine truth. Okay. Now also let's have a look at what the Oxford Dictionary defines for the word herald. And basically it says it's to be a sign that something is about to happen. And when we put those two together, we find a very interesting definition for preaching because it basically means to preach is to signal what is about to happen in the arena of divine truth. So you can see how this is a bit different from merely teaching because this has an, an aspect of prophecy. You know, it's talking about what's about to happen. So we know something of the future here. It's also talking about um, present truth, what is relevant for us to understand now and how that comes together. And so preaching has a very specific focus here which is a bit different to teaching where it's just talking about principles and, and things to do with how you live your life. So what we want to have a look at is an example of where Jesus actually preached based on this definition. And we'll have a look at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we find an example of Jesus preaching, and he is preaching in his hometown, in his hometown of Nazareth. He was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he got up and read these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance, to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he made the following statement. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So as he was talking to his, the people from his hometown, he basically is pointing them to a prophecy, right? This is a prophecy from Isaiah, these words. He's quoted from the scriptures back then. And then he's saying, today it's fulfilled. So he's, he's um, highlighting to them something that's you know, happening now. You know, this is present truth. And um, it's very interesting because they listened to him, the people uh, that he preached to, they heard his words. They would have heard that he'd already been doing this, that he'd already been doing miracles and things. And you would wonder, what, is, what are they thinking? You know, if he's heard, if they have heard of what he's already done, surely their response should be, wait, he's saying this, he's already been doing this. This must be the fulfillment of this verse, which means that 
Jesus is the Christ. That would have been the intention, right? That would have been what Christ wanted them to be convicted of, that here is the Messiah and that they should um, be ready to welcome him. But you know what? Christ discerned that that was not the actual response of their hearts. And he went on to tell them, he went on to tell them that actually no prophet is accepted in his own country. And that there are examples in the Old Testament of prophets who would have been happy to um, heal and do good things for people in their own town, but they had to do it for people who are heathens. And they didn't like that. That was cutting truth that went home to their hearts. They had been surmising most likely, you know, this is just Joseph's son. It's not the Messiah. It can't be. And here, Christ is highlighting their unbelief. And how did they respond? Well, they didn't take the truth. They got angry. They rose up, thrust him out of the city, and led him into the brow of the hill where their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. That was very, very angry <laughs> to be wanting to get rid of him so bad. They really got fired up. But thankfully, Christ was able to slip away and he wasn't, wasn't killed or anything. Let's think about Jesus' approach here. First, he made an appeal to them based on the prophecy showing his gracious character, right? But then he realized that that, that wasn't enough. They weren't convinced with that. So then Jesus showed another aspect of his character, the discernment of the truth that he knew what was in their hearts. And he told them the truth. He was frank with them. He didn't, didn't mince his words. He told them as it was. And this was like another appeal to the people to hear him, to, to take notice of what he was trying to say. But it didn't quite work in this case. However, it's a lesson for us because this is the example. He went from grace and then showed truth. He went from talking about kindness to being quite firm. He was tender and then he was very frank. And again, we find the example of those two streams of attributes where Christ is revealing that even in his preaching discourse with the people in his own town. They hardened their hearts instead of melting under his wise, tender, and frank approach. So, that's preaching. What do we find when we look at examples of Jesus' healing? Let's jump across to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we find the example of the man, the impotent man who was by the pool of Bethesda. He had been there a long time, 38 years, a long time. And uh, he was, um, I guess, very discouraged in terms of having any chance of healing um, because every bit of chance that he thought he would have in terms of getting healing from the pool, he missed it because he was too unwell. Christ saw this man and he came to him 
And he said, Would you want, do, you want to be, do you want to be well? <laughs> and he gave him an opportunity to be well. And this man, thankfully, was able to grasp faith and believe in Christ's command to him to take up his bed and walk. And so he did this. He took up his bed and he walked away, healed, totally healed. Meanwhile, Christ slipped away because it was the Sabbath and he didn't want to get caught uh, because of the Pharisees. But a little time later, he came and found the healed man. And he said some fascinating words to him. In verse 14, we find he says, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. So he's already healed this man, but based on this statement, we get the impression that perhaps this man, his condition perhaps came as a result of his sin, perhaps as a result of his lifestyle before that led him down into this path. But Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, healed the man without even any questions. He just had to have faith. And then afterwards, he came and taught him and told him the importance of following his law, of following his commandments. And that as he would do this, then he would be safe. He would remain healed. So again, we find he blends mercy and grace with an affirmation of his law. Now for another example. Let's jump up a few chapters to John chapter 8, where we find the story of the woman caught in adultery. This story is one that I really love because I think Christ is amazing in the way he handled it. And um, I think we would probably mostly all be familiar with the story where this woman, she was caught in the act of adultery and um, she was surrounded by accusing men. And then Jesus said a few words that put those men in their place and they all went away and left her with Jesus. She would have felt no doubt very ashamed and very um, scared probably as to what was going to happen next. But Jesus said some amazing words. He said in John chapter 8 verse 11, Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Again, we find encapsulated in this one verse those two principles, the grace towards this woman who was totally undeserving of um, any sort of favor. But then the affirmation of God's law and for his principles and for his way of life and that Jesus was encouraging her to go in that pathway. And what is more, through commanding her this, he was empowering her to do that because he believed in her. He believed um, and gave her a sense of value in not condemning her, and then he um, encouraged her to do what was right. Then let's go ahead and look at one more story. This time back a couple of books to Mark chapter 9, where we find another interesting instance of healing This time, the example is of uh, a father who had a boy who was uh, having trouble with some bad seizures and fits and things. 
And this, this father desperately wanted his boy to be healed. He wanted, uh, he wanted his, his, his son to be healed, and he wanted Jesus to be able to do it. And so he was, was seeking for that, that help. And um, when he finally came to Jesus, he said this to him in Mark 9.23. He said, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Okay, so Jesus is giving a little condition here as to how he could proceed with helping him with healing, right? And what do we find? Well, the boy's father, it's not there. The boy's father, if we find the rest of the story, and if you look in the rest of the story, um, the boy, in response to Jesus' statement, says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? So in this one instance, Jesus was both giving this man, this father, hope, as well as highlighting what was the condition of him to receive the healing. Because in this instance, his condition for receiving healing was that he had to have faith. If there was unbelief in his heart, that was going to be a hindrance. Because, let's face it, his son, he was, his problem was, was spiritual. You know, there was, there was spirits that were involved with his, his condition. And if this man was harboring doubt in his heart, those spirits could say, you have no right to, to free this boy. His father... He's doubting. You can't do that. That's our side. But if this man had faith, then that gave the right for God to act to heal and free the boy. And so Christ in this example is showing mercy to the man by saying, this is how it can be done. This is how I can heal you if you have faith. Um, and even though uh, you might be doubting, if you have faith, you can be healed. And the man, he recognized, he confessed his doubt, but he said, I'm choosing faith, and so Christ healed him, even though he'd been struggling. And so we see again an affirmation of Christ's grace in action towards someone who is struggling um, and, and healing to his boy, as well as his affirmation of principles that were were um, very important for this man to follow. So we've had a look at all the different areas of ministry now. We've had a look at teaching to begin with and the Sermon on the Mount. We've had a look at preaching and Christ's example of preaching uh, in Nazareth. And we've also looked at a few different stories where Jesus was healing. And in all of these situations, we find the duality expressed at every level, um, even from the overview of Christ's life, like the bigger fern on, on the left here, then honing down into the smaller parts that are a repeating pattern we found at that next level, the level of Christ's ministry overall, we find those blend of principles. And then we go down to the different aspects of those ministry. Again, we find the blend of principles there. Christ's care mixed with his law, Christ's compassion mixed with judgment, kindness mixed with firmness. The revelation of the duality of Christ's character is like a fractal. 
It's a set of repeating patterns at different levels of his whole life. And no doubt there would be many more. I'm sure if you went and looked at other aspects of his life and experience, you would see this pattern there as well. Because it doesn't matter where you turn, Christ's character was full of grace and truth blended together. So this is what we've looked at today. We have looked at and reviewed the principles of the duality of God's character. We've looked for evidence of this duality, the two streams of attributes in Christ's life. We've noticed the duality in Christ's life overall and its successive scales of detail. And we've recognized that Christ's character matches that of God as revealed in the Old Testament because that Old Testament description of God's character is based on what God said he was like in Exodus 34. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us as well? Here's just a little extra graphic that I wanted to quickly show you just because of some misconceptions that can be out there about the picture of God that we see. In the Old Testament, people can get the idea that God is a bit more harsh than the God in the New Testament. Um, But what we find, and this topic was also discussed a little bit in the lesson this morning, which was great. Um, But what we find, the Old Testament spans a period of a long time, 4,000 years or so. And if we look at the, that period of time, there are a number of occasions where we see dramatic examples of God's ultimate judgment. Things like the flood, things like Sodom and Gomorrah, um, where God destroyed whole cities, whole nations. And we see a number of these examples in the Old Testament. And it's these kind of examples that can give people a picture of, oh no, God is some harsh, terrible, vindictive sort of person, Right? But it's interesting, when you look at the New Testament, people, they don't see Christ doing anything that dramatic. They see him doing a lot of um, loving things, and so they think he's somehow different to the Old Testament. But in the, the New Testament, it only covers a period, a much shorter period of time, 100 years or so, um, in all of the New Testament, which, when you think of the big scheme of things, um, the big scheme of what happens to people and nations, they need time to come to a point where they've finally decided against God, before God will judge, finally. You know, up until that time, he will give mercy and grace combined all the way through. Christ in the New Testament, he, um, there's not so much of that opportunity, uh, time-wise, but we still find examples of God's judgment. He warned about the destruction of Jerusalem. Didn't occur when he was on earth, but that happened in that 100-year period. He warned the Jews about what would happen if they rejected him. Um, And he even did some uh, quite dramatic things in the temple when he was cleansing it. So we find those characteristics there. Um, But overall, we find in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, those two streams of attributes. We find his grace and his truth all together. And um, it's very much a a consistent picture all throughout the Bible. What does this mean for us? Well, 
We've looked at Christ's life and how every aspect of his life revealed God's character in a balanced way. So the question for us is, do we reveal the balance of Christ's attributes in all the various details of our life? Or are there some bits that are a bit skewed? Maybe there's some bits where we need to learn to be a bit more gracious. Maybe there's some bits where we need to be a bit more faithful to principle. Are there some areas where our, the attributes of God's character are even are missing or they're just unbalanced? Because when you study these principles, they apply to every single area of our lives. Every area. From our relationship to, with God to our relationship with one another, in our families, in our marriages, in how we interact with others, in how we reach out to others, every single aspect of our lives, these principles apply to. And we want to reveal God's character in every aspect. That's what we're called to do, isn't it? We're called to reveal his character, to be living examples in this generation of what he is like so that people can see the kind of God that we serve. That he is a God of love and grace and mercy and truth. I believe this is an even bigger ultimate fractal that God wants to reveal in us. Colossians, sorry, Christ Object Lessons, page 69, paragraph 1 says, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. So Christ is the ultimate pattern, but he wants that pattern revealed in each of our lives. That's like a fractal. It's a repeating pattern, but on different scales. Christ is wanting to have that revealed in us. It reminds me of this verse where Christ says, I am the vine and ye are the branches. And you know, when you look at vines and when you look at branches and you look at trees, for example, as you can see a lot of these pictures here, the branches tend to be copies of the same pattern of the main stem, but just at a smaller scale right? So trees, in the way that they're designed, are actually fractals. Every little smaller branch that just sort of branches off again, it's all based on the same mathematical pattern. And this is what Christ wants for us. He wants us to be linked up with him, who's the main branch, the main stem. Um, and then he wants us as the branches to be revealing that same pattern that comes from him. Let's see what his goal is for us in our lives. The biggest ultimate fractal is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because this fractal is, the reason this is, I believe, the biggest ultimate fractal is because this has the most biggest spiritual significance. When Christ is able to reveal his character in our lives, that is a witness not only to those around us, but to the whole world, plus to principalities and powers, and beyond that to angels. It goes to the whole universe that Christ's character is best. His way of life is best, and his 
glory revealed in us is what is most beautiful and most balanced. And uh, this is what is going to ultimately vindicate his name in the great controversy and will give God the most glory and honor. The great thing is that we can all be a part of this biggest ultimate fractal. Every one of us has that opportunity. Christ has given us in his word the things that we need to partake of his character, to learn of his attributes, and to have his power in our lives to transform us. Is it your desire to be a part of this biggest ultimate fractal, to be a part of spreading the glory of God's character in the world? If it is, we can pray together today that you can invite the Lord to do the work in you, to transform every aspect of your life so that you can reveal it and that his name can be honoured. If you just bow for a word of prayer. Dear Lord in heaven, we are just so thankful uh, for the example that you've given us in your word. We thank you that you've given us Christ's life as a pattern for us to copy, to follow, and we thank you for your plan to uh, replicate that copy of character in our own lives. We thank you, Lord, and praise you for your power to transform us and that you are able to work your character in us so that we may have hope um, of having one day glorifying you. We pray, Lord, that you would fill each of our hearts with your spirit and that you would convict us of which areas are not representing you aright in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to get the right balance worked in, to find the right principles that we need to adjust so that we do reveal your character correctly. And uh, we pray, Father, that you would work in us more and more so that this world may be able to get a clearer and clearer picture of your character and what you are like, and so that uh, one day soon you will be able to come home and, that, and take us home and uh, that we will be able to be with you in heaven uh, one day very, very soon. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. And I pray that you would bless everyone here as they go their separate ways now. Um, and may they be blessed for the rest of this Sabbath too, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was made available by the Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. Academy will now sing, Be Like Jesus. Teach me, Father, what?
reading program of 3ABN Australia Radio. Does your faith need a boost? Do you think that miracles only happened in Bible times? Think again. Compiled by Remnant Publications, the book Get Ready for a Miracle recounts true stories that prove that when we step out in faith, God displays His power in undeniable ways. Here is our reader, Harold Harker. This story is entitled, Late Night Desk Agent. Matthew 6.34 says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Some years ago, I was on a flight that was delayed to the point that it would arrive after 2 a.m., I knew that it would mean that the car rental and other ground transportation desks would be long closed by the time I reached my destination. It was before the days of onboard internet, so there was no way to alert anybody that I would be arriving in the middle of the night. And I had an important appointment first thing in the morning. When the plane landed, I made my way to the car rental counters, knowing that my only real option was to wait until five or six o'clock until something opened. I figured I would be spending the night on the floor in the airport. When I arrived in the ground transportation area, however, I was surprised to find a light on at one of the car rental counters. I believe it was national. To my surprise, there was a woman standing behind the counter. When I approached her, she stated very matter-of-factly, Ah, you are a minister who needs a car. The Lord told me to stay open until you arrive. I've got your vehicle ready for you. 
She said it casually, as if this sort of thing happened to her every day. I, on the other hand, was left to marvel at God's provision in the middle of the night and spent the next hour's drive repenting of the anxiety I had been allowing myself while travelling to the airport. A reflection associated with this story comes from Ministry of Healing, page 481. The faithful discharge of today's duties is the best preparation for tomorrow's trials. Do not gather together all tomorrow's liabilities and cares and add them to the burden of today. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Matthew 6.34 This story, Late Night Desk Agent, was written by Sean Boonstra, the Speaker-Director for Voice of Prophecy, the voice of prophecy exists to proclaim the everlasting gospel of Christ, leading people to accept Jesus as their saviour and nurturing them in preparation for his soon return. You can read details on the website vop.com. You've been listening to the book reading program by 3ABN Australia Radio featuring Get Ready for a Miracle. For more information about this book, visit remnantpublications.com. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.